0: Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews, General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at Marcos Codejo is an assistant professor in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Manitoba. He holds a PhD in biosystems engineering and is registered as a professional engineer in Manitoba. He has extensive expertise in agroenvironmental modeling, statistical analysis of large data sets, spatial analysis using geographical information systems and remote sensing, and data set development. His multidisciplinary expertise enabled him to work on relevant research at national scale, such as the recent water footprint assessment of the Canadian beef industry, which empowered producers to use science-based evidence to garner public trust with regards to the environmental sustainability of the industry. Welcome to the podcast today, Marcos. Thank you so much for taking time to join me.
1: Thank you, Chantal, for having me.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. You have a number of current research projects that are listed on your University of Manitoba profile, many of which are looking directly at different aspects of the beef industry in Manitoba and in the prairies. Before we dig into the specifics of some of those projects, can you share some information on your history and background and what led you to this interest in studying Manitoba agriculture?
1: Sure. So my, my background is actually biosystems engineering. So I did work with soil and water engineering doing my graduate studies and uh, modeling was part of the work I did then. But I, I was doing modeling mostly applied to cropping systems. And then it was when I, I moved to Alberta to work at AFC there doing applied modeling work for, for animal systems, mostly beef and dairy systems that I started looking more seriously into grasslands and and the type of environment that's used to support the beef industry, for example. So that was actually that experience was what actually brought me to where I am right now. I am in the Department of Animal Science, so I have no background in animal production, very strongly, except for my undergrad, uh, where I did, you know, aquaculture is mostly, you know, shrimp, fish farming. Yeah, so that experience in Alberta, Led me to doing modeling applied to animal systems, and this is what brought me to the position I am today, which is assistant professor here in the Department of Animal Science, dealing mostly with modeling of agroecosystems. But this is very interesting because cropping systems, as you know, it's a big part of animal production systems, right? Because all the feed that we use comes from those cropping systems. So that background actually helped me a lot to understand how the industry works better and then to direct my research program in that way.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about your current position at U of M and maybe what that looks like on a daily basis or kind of the things that you're involved in through that?
1: Sure. So as I said before, I, my, my work primarily was not modeling, but it came to be I doing model simulations for agricultural systems. So I saw myself even though I have the background of field work I did a lot of uh, field work in the past my my program specialized more in using computers to simulate what goes on in agricultural systems so what you try to do especially at large scales is try to represent what happens in the landscape inside a computer and then you try to use computer models to see what's going to happen in the future if we change a management practice for example Or we try to impose a different climate data set on top of the simulations to see how future climate or climate change would impact the performance of that system, for example. So my work on a daily basis has a lot of computers and programs and things like this, but today what I'm doing is going back more to the field work and we see the need of going back and measuring some of this data in the field to be able to inform the models that we use in the lab. So some of the information that's not already available, we have to get out there and uh, measure to inform and improve the simulations we do.
0: And what kind of programs would you be using to create those models?
1: Well, some of those models, they are off the shelf. We use a different range of models, like we use one that's developed by the USDA called the Integrated Farm System Model. This is used for, can simulate both dairy and beef systems. We can also use the soil and water assessment tool, i call it SWOT. This is another model developed in the U.S. to simulate the impact of management practices in agriculture systems as a whole. We also use custom models developed here. For example, we did some work in the past to estimate the water footprint of the beef industry across Canada. And for that, we didn't have a particular model to use. So we use some outputs from different models from like the national drought model uh, that's developed by AFC. But then we had to develop our own algorithms inside the lab because there is no particular model that to do this work. So we use a varied range of tools depending, we try not to reinvent the wheels. So if the tool is already available, try to implement that in our research. If it's not there, we try to either modify the existing tools, or try to develop our own, if needed.
0: That was so interesting to me when people can build programs and modify programs, because I'm not a tech person.
1: I know, and you know, it sounds like it's fun, but I'm losing my hair over that, right? So it's it's <laughs> a lot of work, because the challenge for us is the representation, to try to represent a very complex system inside the computer, right? So. In many cases, you have to simplify. It's a simplified representation of what you see in reality. But what you wanted to get that is that the model is close enough to the reality that you can simulate and gain some insight about that, right? So I have my challenge, uh, believe me. So it's, it's not fun all the time. But this is something I enjoy doing I know, mostly for the application side of things. And this is what drives what you do here, right? It's, it's always trying to ground what you do in the lab with what's going on. Out there.
0: Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit more about some of those models a little bit later on. And we have a couple of projects that we're going to dig into a little bit. So one of the current projects you're working on is titled Estimating Carrying Capacity on Crown Lands for Beef Cattle Grazing in Manitoba. Can you give us a brief overview of this project?
1: This project, when I first joined here, my natural tendency was to work with the beef industry because I already had some experience and relationship in the past. And one thing that I came across when I arrived back in Manitoba, because I did my studies here, was I came across the Manitoba Protein Strategy, where they had the goal to improve the sustainable productivity of protein in the province by 35% uh, in the future, and this includes beef production as well. So I asked the question, do we have the feed to support this growth of the industry? So this is the initial question that drove that project. So we start looking at the crown lands initially, because we knew that there was some initiative by the province to develop a data set to map those grasslands across the province, those crown lands across the province. So I thought that that would be a great starting point, you know, to get the ball rolling in terms of that research. And the idea was, you know, we know the size of the industry here and let's see If the production of those grasslands, of these grazing lands can support any growth of this industry. And the answer for that, surprisingly, was that, yes, based on the data sets, I'd like to highlight this because a lot of the results we get depends on the data sets that we use. Right. So if you have, you know, very very accurate data sets, we get better results. If our data sets are not accurate we have to take that with a grain of salt and then the same way with the results, but based on the data sets that we use, the results indicated that there is suggestion or evidence that the grasslands can support this growth of the beef industry moving forward. And this is, this is the whole rationale behind, behind the project.
0: Do you know at this point, how much growth you expect that the grasslands could handle?
1: Yes. So what the number showed and we used the classification done by the province. I can talk about this data set a little bit later. And one thing that's really important for this result was the productivity of, the, of those grasslands, right? So the carrying capacity of those grasslands, and we used data from the, the benchmark project that was done in the province. And that with those two data sets, there was a 40, around 45% under grazing possibility that could be explored in the the province in the future because the stocking rates that we saw could be in some instances one point times higher than what they are right now right so and the the purpose of that article that you mentioned was that you put these results out there and to make it reach the the producers right to see and we've got some feedback and that was this was a great great outcome of this project was getting that direct contact with producers and getting their feedback because some producers said, hey, in my country here, I don't think I can support that growth. And I said, you know, even though we are showing one average number for the whole of the crownlands, the reality could be that some areas have a reduction, so they are overgrazed. There should be a slowing down of the grazing there, while some areas could have a little bit of intensification and increasing those stocking rates. But on overall, over the, all the crown lands, this would be around a 45% undergrazing rate that you could be explored for the growth of the industry.
0: Interesting. And that kind of rolls really well into the next question, which is how are they currently assessing carrying capacity on crown lands?
1: So, what you use in the research was we used the Manitoba Grassland Inventory, which was a digital product generated from satellite imagery. So, this product classified grasslands as natural grasslands, dame grasslands, and mixed grasslands. So this was done for the whole of the Crownlands area in Manitoba. And the beauty of this analysis is that we can do, you know, the whole classification at once, right? Of course, it needs some computer power, but it can be done at large scales. The way this is done in the province right now is that people, when the groundland leases come up for renewal, people from the province, like staff, specialists, go to that parcel of land and they reassess the carrying capacity there. So this is done not every year. And for the most part, those leases can take up to 15 years to be renewed. So that particular parcel might not be assessed in, in 15 years, for example, right? I'm not saying that people don't go there back in 15 years, but that might take that long. So the estimate from the province Is that only around 5% of the crown lands get assessed annually. So all of the whole of the crown lands, only 5% gets assessed. So that means that assessment is not very up to date. Sometimes there could be changes. And also that assessment doesn't look into ecological changes, climate change, for example, right, if you wait 15 years to reassess, there could be large impacts on the productivity of that piece of land. For example, we've seen a, a dry spell in the last few years that impact productivity. So those things cannot be captured if you take that long to go back. So the idea of this study was also to make it feasible, to see if it would be possible to have this assessment done every year on in a much shorter timeline so that you can use technology to this assessment and to estimate what type of productivity is available for producers. So
0: I found an article titled Cattle Country Manitoba's Agricultural Crown Grazing Lands, Assessing Potential for Growing the Beef Industry, which was written by Peter Froley through the National Center for Livestock and Environment at the University of Manitoba. And I'll include the link to that in the show notes. But in this article, it was discussing that you're using these data sets to estimate the forage yield, carrying capacity and stocking rates. So can you share kind of what this means and how it is that you're looking at accomplishing this?
1: Right. So this article was uh, what I mentioned before, that we took this research, there was a master's thesis out of that. And then we tried to boil it down to a language that would be accessible for producers in a media that they could have access to as well, right? So this article was produced by my beef producers. And this is one way that we use to reach out to producers. So we try to show those results. And this is what gave, you know, opened the door for feedback and interaction with producers, because some producers said, yeah, no, I don't believe my crown lands can produce that much or can support an increase in in carrying capacity or stocking rates. And we acknowledge that, right? Even though the, the overall number was showing an increasing, a potential increase in stocking rates, but this is not across the board. Some areas could have a reduction. But this has been a great way to get this research out there and to maybe get the conversation going in terms of Uh, things are changing right for example there could be policy changes climate changes there's also the whole carbon issue biodiversity has come up in the conversation so it's important for producers to keep those things in mind Uh, i think there is way more on producers plate today than it was you know maybe 10 15 years ago in terms of uh, environmental regulations even consumer expectations in terms of how a beef is produced so I think the goal for that article was to get this word out there and get the conversation going, get people thinking about these you know, upcoming changes and how we can address them. Our proposition here is to use technology to f- favor uh, producers and, and help them to manage their land and take advantage of resources that are underutilized, if any. Right? If they are not aware of these resources, uh, how can you make them knowledgeable about what's out there and how they can use this so our goal with articles like that is to contribute to the conversation and actually to to provide uh tools and, and information that producers can use to act on operations
0: i'm not super familiar with the crown lands but is the way that the lease or the agreement with the crown lands is written right now that producers can put a certain number of animals on that land for a certain amount of time each year, and that would be what their carrying capacity would be?
1: Yes, typically the carrying capacity is is defined, I think on, I'm not super familiar with the the details of the leases, but I think the carrying capacity is estimated upon the signing of the contract, and then they can use that land based on that carrying capacity. Also, they cannot do any management in the land as well, so they cannot improve that productivity uh, of that parcel of land. So some producers might have crown lands. they might have also have private land. So in the management, in that case could be completely different because they can use a more intense type of management in their land. But yeah, so the idea is also to inform the, the leasing process, hopefully in the policy in terms of uh, how, how can this new information that's coming up that's based on technology could help to come up with a fair lease contract that producers can benefit from. And also the province has a good estimate of what's actually being produced in, in those those parcels.
0: It's interesting because like you said earlier with the, like the drought in the last few years, I'm thinking specifically, say, in the interlake region, I know even here where we saw the drought, but it wasn't nearly as bad as up there, the differences in our carrying capacity on our fields from, say, this year to whatever that was, 2020 or 2021, when the drought was so bad. Just thinking like if their lease doesn't change and they're only assessing those lands every 15 years, I can see why there's a big problem. And this
1: is a very good point, right? Because, for example, we use the product that's derived from satellite. If the satellite captures average conditions, right? And if you use average conditions of, for example, we use productivity data or yield data from the benchmark project, this is way above what you see in a drought year, for example. Right? So are we capturing average years here to define the lease or are you taking now into consideration those extreme events that we've had over the past few years? So I think this has to be taken into consideration as well. If you set the productivity too high, you might not reach that productivity every year. So you have to set it back a little bit less so that you can account for those variations and then the producer still has conditions to manage that land is to support their, their herds. In those parcels. So this is a very good point.
0: Can you tell me what MGI is and how it's being used in this project?
1: MGI, I think I referred to it before, is the Manitoba Grassland Inventory. This is an inventory of Crownlands specifically, where they classify the, those parcels into natural grasslands, mixed grasslands, and tame grasslands those parcels, the classification is actually at very high resolution for the scope of the project of the of the data set which is classified parcels in a 30 by 30 meter spatial resolution which is quite high right if you think about a quarter session being half a mile by half a mile we have you know those 30 by 30 pixels inside so we can, can classify quarter sessions with a relatively high degree of uh, accuracy. So with, with that classification, we have a map of the grasslands. And then we still needed to do this project. One thing that the MGI also did is we have the satellite. This is one thing, the image that comes from, from satellites. The other thing is they have a very big effort to go to those parcels and ground truth it. So people went doing windshield surveys. In some cases, they took you know, biomass samples to see the productivity. So there is a lot of work involved in developing something like this. At some point, there was a little army of people, you know, in in a particular day, going out and measuring those, at least classifying this. This helps people during the classification with checking the accuracy of the classification, right? For example, satellite says this is natural grasslands. Is it really true? So now I have data from several data points that says, yes, this is natural grasslands. So in general, I was involved with that project. Uh, I got to doing the classification myself. uh, Somebody else was doing that. And I think they have, they got very high accuracies, like over 90% accuracy in terms of the classification. And this was a very good sign because it's very hard to get 100% accuracy in a classification like that. There's all sorts of reasons why from a technical standpoint, but 90% classification is actually very good. So this was the map that we had. And then we applied the productivity from the analysis beyond the MGI, right? MGI is just that one layer that maps out the grasslands. And then the project went one step further and we collected data from the benchmark project with measured productivity across the province in a couple of sites over a couple of years, and then used those numbers to estimate the carrying capacity.
0: And what were the project findings at this point?
1: The overall outcome was that we observed that the crown lands were generally undergrazed, so we could increase the carrying capacity there to support a, a growth of the beef industry. This, is the, this was the major finding of the research.
0: How can higher stocking rates reduce or lower the beef industry's carbon footprint?
1: This is a good, a good point because we tend to think that increasing the size of the industry will increase the footprint, right? Because have more beef and things like this. In absolute term, this is generally true. But what you're trying to do here is to increase the, the sustainable intensification of the beef industry. That means we are increasing the efficiency. So that means for every unit of water, for example, or every unit of carbon that you use, we producing more beef. So that means I'm intensifying. So this is a concept in agriculture that is well proven, accepted. If you increase the efficiency, that means you are using resource in a better way. So if we are increasing the efficiency of the bivouine industry that way by using resource more uh, effectively, then by consequence, I'm lowering the environmental footprint of those landscapes. And one thing that's important to mention here is that the benefits of the grasslands, they go way beyond carbon. Everyone is talking about carbon these days because it's one hot topic, but there's also biodiversity, right? There's all the ecosystem services that come into play as well that are held by those grasslands. And having the beef industry in those grasslands is actually one way to alleviate the pressure of conversion from grasslands into annual cropping, which is much more detrimental to the environment because those ecosystem services would go away if the grasslands not there. So having beef is one way to ensure that the grasslands will stay, put, will stay in place and then the ecosystem services are preserved.
0: I think that's a really good point because you're right. So many people are talking about carbon and carbon footprints, but there's way more to the conversation than just carbon.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we see, you know, biodiversity being brought up more and more. Some people say biodiversity is the new carbon and we are already doing some work on, on the biodiversity front as well. Going back to your question about the MGI the beauty of a data set like that is that you can use it for different means, right? In, in our case, use used for estimating carry capacity, but at some point, you also want to use it to estimate carbon stocks, for example, or you can use that to estimate potential for biodiversity maintenance. So the same data set can be used to different ends and for different analysis, and, it, and this is the beauty of a, a product like that.
0: I'm trying to think of the way to phrase this question, I guess, but... Moving forward, if you were able to say have the crown lands assessed every year or every other year, what kind of technology would you be using to do that? Or would you have people out there every year on every piece of land? Or kind of what would that look like in your perfect world?
1: So in the perfect world, we'd have people going out to those parcels and assessing them, right? Sometimes what happens in the past, what happened in the past was People just, they had a look and, and those parcels, they are not homogeneous and uniform. You can have several types of grasslands, right, depending on the landscape. So what they do is they take sometimes the dominant type of grassland coverage and assign that to the productivity of that parcel. So ideally, would you have enough people and resources and time to go to the parcels, assess it in detail. In terms of not only at one number at the quarter section level, but you know, looking at the different landscapes and different areas that could have a composite effect on the productivity. So this is what would be ideal. Unfortunately, we don't have the resource and time to put into that, right? So the province doesn't have enough people to do that for sure. So this is this is the reason why we will try to use technology to do this assessment, to expedite the assessment and also to increase the coverage that you can have, because people can only be so many places at once. So with technology, the hope is that we can have a revisit time that we can go back more frequently and enjoy the assessment. The other part of the story is that technology is not perfect, right? So one of the aspects of the that you saw in this study is that to have a better handle on productivity, we would need a higher resolution data set as well. So we don't try to sell technology as all for... For everything but it is one important tool that you can use to address the gap in terms of uh, resources to to assess those grasslands so we could say well we don't have the resource let's stop here and just sit down or we can just let's try to do something about it and this is what the research is doing right trying to use those technologies and those data sets trying to, to improve that we have identified a couple of improvements that could have been made and this is something we try to address in the future And we don't think this is an end product. You don't stop. You keep improving it and you keep finding, you know, through feedback from producers, from technical aspects we saw, trying to improve it moving forward and try to make it work better.
0: And what impact could all of this have for producers for future carbon markets? And I guess in general, the role of the beef industry in promoting those ecological goods and services?
1: Chantal, as I mentioned before, like it's important for us to increase the valuation of grasslands because, as I mentioned, there's a huge pressure to convert those grasslands into annual crop if the value is not there, right? So you see the, the prices of annual crop and grains going up, and this puts a lot of pressure into converting those pieces of land from natural coverage to something more productive. And even if particular land has not a very high agricultural capability, because you don't get much out of that, in terms of productivity, but if the price is high enough, that justifies the conversion, right? So we have enough return into that little piece of uh, yield that it's worthwhile converting that land. So one thing I see is that by showing, you know, quantifying this and showing that the, the industry can be more efficient in terms of utilization of resources, we can also show because beef is a big part of the grassland system, because it is a natural process that stimulates those grasslands and then increases productivity. If you don't have the beef, the productivity is not the same, right? You need that grazing to take place. So by having that stimulus to the grassland, then you you now sequestering more carbon, for example, by having this grassland place, we have the habitat for birds, for example, one of the projects I have, it's funded by Environment Canada, and the interest of uh, the branch is actually conservation of species at risk, specifically birds. So I don't do anything. I don't know anything about birds, but we have a common ground, which is grasslands. They approach grasslands from a conservation perspective. We approach grasslands from a carbon and a beef industry perspective, and we have a common interest there. So people are interested to show the value of having grasslands in place. So from a producer's perspective, we hope to turn this research into good stories to tell right? So you want producers to have that story to tell, hey, I'm part of the solution here, right? I'm helping to hold those grasslands in place. And those grasslands have huge impact on the ecosystem service that goes way beyond the boundaries of the grasslands, right? So we have air quality, we have nutrient water quality regulation, we have carbon, we have biodiversity, as you mentioned. So all those things are good stories to tell. And Going back to the early point I made, consumers are more concerned about how you know, their, their food is produced. Is it sustainably produced? So those are good stories to tell, to circle back to consumers and say, hey, the food you eat is actually very sustainable. And without beef, we'd have actually a loss of environmental quality because those services, services would go away. Our goal here is to equip producers with those stories so that they can be informed and engage in those conversations with the public and with policymakers to make the case that their activity is actually sustainable.
0: I really liked what you said there about, like without having the beef industry, then there would be a loss in the environmental quality. I I think that that often is overlooked.
1: Yes, you know, we have the issue, you didn't brought up wetlands, for example, right? Huge, huge, uh, important piece of the puzzle and those wetlands are embedded in grasslands, right? So when you have the grasslands, you have this support of the grasslands, you also preserving wetlands as well. So, you know, it, it's a, a domino effect that you, you start to preserve that. And there's these studies saying that uh, grasslands also impact the annual crop around them. This is also important you know, research by Henry Wilson from AFC in Brandon, they have showed that. So this is important to have those grasslands where they are and to keep them there.
0: Is this technology going to be available to producers outside of the crown lands?
1: We hope so. The satellite part, it's already available. So it, the classification has not been done, but it can be done to areas outside the crown lands. Piece for the classification, is, as I said, going out in the field and the verification part, because you have to verify what's actually there. If it's what the satellite's saying, right? The satellite will give you a number. It's just like a, a nice picture and every little pixel has a number to it. So we have to say this number here is actually natural grassland. This little number here, which is a little bit different, it's a mixed grassland. So the hard part is going out to the field. This is what takes time and resources, going out there and making those measurements. But this is something we you want to engage through commodity groups like uh, MBP, for example, or through other partners. We can try to expand that. Ideally, we'd have this map for other areas outside the crown lines.
0: It would be interesting as a producer to see kind of where our lands classify and whether or not there's that potential for for growth in our own grazing operations, say.
1: Uh, Yes, it would be really interesting. And this would open the door for looking at the management, for example, right? Because now when you move into private lands, then you have such a variety of, of management, right? Some people, they do all sorts of creative things. You know, in different things, it can be your neighbor next door could do something completely different than you. How do this impact? And then on the field validation part, I think the field history and also the management history, it would be very important to come up with those differentiations between our uh, productivities for different types of land. So I agree with you, it would be really interesting.
0: It would be. We've kind of talked a little bit about this already, but Broadly speaking, what are your thoughts on the role of new technologies in agriculture and how do you think they can have a positive impact on the beef industry?
1: I'm a bit biased maybe, right? Because you talked about technology and I come with this background. But from what I've seen, I don't think there is a way back from using technology. I mean, in our lives, right? Technology just, you know, came from everywhere. And I I don't think there's a way around that. And we have to see technology is not perfect, but friendly, and something that can really help us to achieve our goals, right? In this case, our goals is sustainability, both from a financial perspective and also environment, because sometimes when we say sustainability, people think automatically about the environment, but you have to make those operations viable from a financial standpoint as well. They have to be sustainable financially to be able to support those landscapes, and this is why I mentioned valuation, because we, we cannot forget about the economic aspect of this whole idea but technology is something that allows us to do this assessment at a much lower price point and also much faster and with less uh, human resources so these are all good reasons to incorporate technology in what you do and we had a couple meetings with producers from mbp and producers are also interested in using technology right they say how can i use technology in my operation to leverage what I have and to gain insights about what I do, right? What would be an easy way that technology can help me collect information that you help me make wiser decisions from an operation standpoint, but also to show that what I'm doing is right. So, you know, you see this interest from producers as well. I'm not saying it's widespread, but I think it's, it's, it's kind of getting some traction there and people realize the importance of technology. So. Our goal is to make this technology available that it can provide this type of information for this decision-making process in the farm
0: and beyond. So this is the third episode kind of in a row where we're talking a little bit about new technologies that are available in the egg field. And to me, it's, I guess, interesting would be the right word because, and I've mentioned this before in other episodes, but when you think about the technology that was available in agriculture Fifteen or twenty or forty years ago, and then where it is today and where it's going, it just—it's mind-blowing how far it's come and the advancements that are going to happen, that are going to change the game for a lot of producers.
1: It is amazing, right? Today, you know, you can go with a cell phone, take a picture, send a picture to a little app, and then the app will come up with uh, some sort of a prediction. Or, or, and we have to be careful because there's uh, also the risk of people overpromising as well. You know, from technology, especially. You have to be careful not to go too commercial and, you know, to get you caught up on the hype about technology. Uh, I think it has its use and it's really promising, but you have to know what technology can and cannot do. But, you know, I also look at you. It's amazing looking back of uh, what can be done, data transfer, telemetry, right? All sorts of things. We still have some hurdles to overcome, like uh, internet connectivity, for example, In rural Manitoba is not great, right? In Canada as a whole, it's not great. As soon as you move out of the urban areas, the quality of internet drops quite a bit. So, this limits what you can do with technology. But, you know, once you pass that, there's people working on that to improve that. But there's such a wide range of sensors and, you know, products that assess imagery or drone, for example, right? People using drones these days. Even your cell phone, tractor mounted technology as well is also developing very fast. So, I agree with you. There's a huge potential to use that
0: kind of going back to something you had mentioned earlier with the data sets that you're using and modeling approaches can you break down for listeners how models are used and how they can help address research questions in agriculture sure
1: so models they try to explain reality through mathematics right so what you do is we try to come up with an equation that represents that what happens in the field for example If I have my my pasture land and if it rains this many inches this year, I know I can expect this much productivity for my my grass, for example. So the models will capture that, right? So the models will now take the input as precipitation and they, they know the type of grass I have. And they do the calculations in the background and say, okay, it rained this much. So by the end of this month, you have this much grass growth. What models do beautifully is they bring together a lot of those different equations and do all the calculations at once now i not only know how much the grass are growing but i also know how much water they are using i also know what's the uh, nutrient status nitrogen and phosphorus status on the soil i also know how much is being leached out out of the landscape in terms of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus for example so all those calculations are trained together into, inside the model And then they give me the output or the results for all different sorts of variables and then the models allow us to look at that this is how we are able to see for example if i get this model working let's say for somebody else's farm and then i say this is their farm i know they have these many cattle uh, heads, I know they have this many fields with that kind of crop, I know they apply this much fertilizer, I know they do this in this operation, and I know they harvest on that day, so now I can impose the climate, and I know, more or less, I can make predictions about, for example, what's my yield for a section uh, over there. And the beauty about that is that once I do all this setting of this farm in the model, I now go back to that farmer's record and I say, is the model correct in terms of uh, yields, for example? They said, yeah, this is in the ballpark, right? The, the model is capturing what's going on in terms of trends for yield, in terms of trends for fertilizer use, for example, in terms of soil fertility. So okay, I can say my model is more or less correct. It's nev- never perfect, but it's close enough. So now what I can do is with this model as my baseline, I can now look at scenarios. What if it gets warmer in the future. So I can run a different climate data set through the model and say, what's my productivity is going to be? What's the impact of this warmer climate on my my yields? For example, what's what's the impact of reduction in precipitation on my yields, right? So the models allow us to look at scenarios without actually having to implement them, which is actually very expensive. For example, if I want to try a different management practice, what if I don't do this year for this particular year and I have this other crop coming up uh, next year, right? So what would happen? So the model will allow me to look into that without having to implement that in the field. As you can tell, I'm saving a lot of time and money by doing that. One thing that the models can do is to give me, you know, okay, this is what the model is giving me the result. Now, is it actually true? So now I have to test, but the beauty about the models is that Let's say I want to reduce my carbon footprint for my farm, so inside the model I can try 10 different management practices and I can say okay the model is telling me that practice. One and practice seven are the best to want to reduce my carbon footprint, now I can narrow down from 10 to two and implement those in the farm and actually see the result. So what models help us do is to select the most promising types of management practices and actually try them in the field, because at the end of the day, we still have to validate what the model is saying. If I see my farm, yeah, the model was right. If I do this management here, I would be increasing my carbon sequestration, then I can implement that. If I say, no, actually what's happening is the carbon sequestration went down, so I actually lost carbon. So I say, well, the model is wrong. So I have to go back to my model and say, what did I get wrong here? What kind of a representation did I get wrong inside the model that I have to improve? So it's this, you know, feedback loop where I do the modeling, try in the field, learn from that. If it's correct, I move my move on. If not, I go back to the model, try to improve it. And then I keep doing that. So to answer your, your question in a nutshell, it's just like the models allow me to look, especially at large scales, to look at what the results would be for a certain change in the future, and then I can make a decision based on that.
0: I That's hope pretty that amazing. Your Yeah, no, it did. So are you hoping that eventually those models might be available to producers as well?
1: Yes, well, to some extent, some of these models are already. For example, we have the Holos model, which is developed by AFC in Lethbridge, and this model is actually in constant development. And they try to make it easy enough for producers to use. It's not super complex. You know, this model is always trying to implement some new management practices or some other crops. So we keep working with that group, trying to implement some of those new developments that science gives us into the model so that you can start to model that. Models cannot do everything. For example, some of this stuff that Brett might be doing might be too advanced for the model because it's too novel, right? It's not. There's not no science there. So what you do in this case is you probably go to your farm to measure some of what's going on in the field, and then you say, now I can develop that little equation that will go into my model. So this is the constant development of the tool.
0: So cool. Another one of your current projects is titled Beef Production in the Canadian Prairies, Prospects of Feed Availability Under Climate and Land Use Changes. Can you share what this project encompasses?
1: Sure. So this was the overarching umbrella of, of the idea when I discussed about the first project. We want to see, okay, the beef industry is evolving, right? Not only the beef industry, like the agricultural industry as a whole is facing threats moving forward in terms of uh, climate change, land use, pressure for land use, conversion, loss of soil health, for example. So this particular project looked at the beef industry you to see hey what are the prospects for feed production in the future do you have any significant threat that may hinder the ability of the industry to sustain itself in the long term so you want to make make sure that the industry if it's going to remain here and we already discussed the importance of keeping the beef industry where it is uh, but you have to make sure that industry has potential to to keep producing the number one input that you cannot do without is feed for the animals. So then we approach that, right? So when I see is the feed production going to be sustained and look at the two major threats would be climate land use change there. The project we discussed before is part of that. We also did some research in Alberta to see if the different regions of the province would be self-sufficient. And what you found out there is that the industry is not, especially in dry years the industry typically relies on inputs from other regions of the province, sometimes from from Saskatchewan, sometimes even from the US, to supply the feed demand for the cattle herds that are there. As you know, Alberta has a higher density of cattle, so this this explains why you need that input. But this kind of picture, this is what, because we quantified, what's the shortage, right? So are we 20% below what you need? Are we 30% below? So how are we going to bridge that gap? This is the whole idea about this project.
0: Did you come up with a number of where the percentage of the gap is of how low they are in the feed that's necessary?
1: It varies by year, right? Sometimes we have gaps of, uh, you know, for example, in 2001, they have a very dry year in Alberta. So the gaps were, you know, very large, higher than 50%. This is where, you know... The goal for this is and the, the gap was not uniform across the province. So the, the gap was much higher in the south where the higher density of caraways, as opposed to the central and north areas. So the gap takes in account this geographical spatial component, right? And the goal with that is to help the, the industry to plan, right? So for example, if the droughts in Montoba are becoming more often, where is this feed coming from? How can we uh supply that demand? And, you know, people came up with very creative ways to address the feed shortage. As you said, in the region, they didn't have much of a problem, but in their lake, they had. So we had sometimes people moving their cattle around and they grazing on stables, grazing on agricultural fields, things like that. So we tried to come up with those plans and solutions, and this might lead to new partnerships that before were not existent. So, you know, by knowing the threat, we try to find a solution for those. So this is the whole idea about this, get the conversation going, showing this is what the models are doing, um, saying is going to happen in the future. And how can you address this this, this threat? That
0: would be super useful in your planning, like you said, for your potential outcomes of what the next couple of years are going to look like, depending on your climate and depending on kind of what happens as you go through the year. Uh, I can yes. see that being very very beneficial for producers.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So this is the whole idea about this, right? One thing that you know is really knowingly hard to predict is the extreme events. This is what you have seen, you know, very dry and red, wet, very wet years, you know, um, back to back. So this is still hard even for models to predict, for climate models to incorporate. But as you said, if you can plan for that, you know it's becoming more prevalent or occurring more frequently than we can plan for that in a better way and start to establish those partnerships.
0: And the final project that I wanted to discuss with you today is looking at nutrient export in Canada. Can you share a little bit about this project and why nutrient export is a concern?
1: Okay, this is another piece of those ecosystem services that you talk about, right? So grasslands are a very important piece on the nutrient cycling. And people typically uh, you know, scrutinize the beef industry for nutrient excretion in terms of pasture. So there is the manure being deposited in the pasture. So they say those nutrients make their way into waterways or water bodies. People tend to criticize. So the question for this project was, well, you have other sources of nutrients in the landscape, right? So you, you know cattle is there. So it's grazing, it's releasing manure. But we also have the soil itself, which is a source of nutrients. And you have the vegetation, which in the prairies here is is a very important source because we have the, the freezing cycles and then those freezing and thawing cycles, what they do is they break up the tissue of the vegetation and they facilitate the release of nutrients. So the nutrients might not only come from manure, especially because manure, sometimes the, the nutrient is locked in, right, in organic form, so it doesn't go away right away. So the idea for this is to see, hey, let's let's see the relative contribution of those different pools. We have the soil, we have the vegetation, we have the cattle, let's call it the cattle, right, the manure. What's the relative contribution from each of those to the export of nutrients? And this project is actually, I just uh, had a meeting last week with people working this project, and we have some, some preliminary numbers. And what I can tell you at this point is that Manure is not the primary sources for some of those nutrients, right? Vegetation is, in some cases. This, again, is gonna be important information for producers to share, to say, so those concepts that you have, you know, beef in the landscape is contributing to eutrophication. Well, if you remove beef, naturally, this eutrophication will also take place because the vegetation is still there. And the, without carrying the cattle grazing it, there's still even more vegetation to release more nutrients. So those stories are important to be told because they help us from a science perspective to manage those landscapes because we know producers want to do the right thing, right? So if, if you give them the information, we can come up with solutions for that. How can you minimize that? So by knowing where to focus in terms of what's the lowest hanging food, what's my bank for the buck here, what can I do with a little bit of management that can get a, a huge gain in terms of reducing exports. So if you know where those exports are coming from, then I can have a target management to handle that that piece of the puzzle. And this is where we hope this research will inform producers and science moving forward.
0: And do you have kind of a list of your, I don't know, top five ways that producers can impact their surface runoff and say, maybe reduce that on their operation?
1: Right, runoff is, you know, this is the classical things, right? We know that, you know, uh, vegetation in good health, soil in good health, they will promote infiltration, right? So by promoting infiltration, we have already less, less runoff. To start with, perennial forages are much better than annual crops because they have a deeper root system. They promote soil structure, so this allows the water to infiltrate. They also keep evapotranspiring, like they keep, you know, losing water or having a high AT longer than annual crops. So what this does, this uses up the soil moisture and then opens up space for the water in the spring to infiltrate. So I already know this. But if you look only at the management from uh, foraging and grasslands, I think it's trying to have a healthy vegetation. I try not to overgraze. Try not to have a very high stock in density to compact that soil because you know, soil compaction, poor vegetation health, this all contributes to higher runoff. They don't trap enough snow as well. This all goes back to the, to the hydrology. Now we have to say this, keeping in mind that different soil types will also be very influential. So if you have a, you know, a sandy soil compared to a heavy clay soil or a long soil, this is going to be very different. And the management might be different for those landscapes. You have to be careful not to generalize across the board because there is particular conditions on the farm that will influence that runoff as well.
0: And is agriculture the only source of water quality concerns in Canada?
1: No, no, it's not. So agriculture in general, it's called a non-point source, right? That's, that means the source of the nutrients is, is very diffuse. It comes from a very large area. This contrasts to have a point source solution, which could be water treatment plants, for example, right? Uh, Waste treatment plants. Those are with point sources where they release a large amount of nutrient at once. Agriculture in general, it's very diffuse, it's very large, but one main problem, especially here for Manitoba, is annual agriculture, right? Because of fertilizer use. This is, you know, this has been shown here, especially for the Red River Valley. When you have the floods, those waters cover the landscape, and they pick up that phosphorus and then they take it back to the river that goes into the lake. This is one source that we have acknowledged that's there, but it's not this single source if you consider other at uh, point source of uh, pollution as well. So it is one thing. I remember talking to some profs and they say, there's always the possibility of pointing fingers. But I think it's important for us to realize what we can do, right, on our end to improve that. And I think agriculture is doing an important job. Agriculture is aware of those problems and is trying to address them. You know, we have the, on the fertilizer front, we have the 4R framework, right? The right rate placement timing. So if you manage your fertilizer well that way, you're already going to see large gains in terms of nutrient management and avoiding those losses to the environment
0: we've covered a lot of things today, but I'm thinking that we'll start kind of wrapping up. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we end? I know we've really just kind of brushed the surface of a lot of projects, but...
1: Yes. So one thing that I think I'd like to mention is that, you know, I think I mentioned a little bit at the beginning, but I'd like to reinforce that we are going back to field monitoring to inform what you do on the models, right? We also have to be careful to validate our models, this is something we do and also trying to use measurements monitoring in the field to be able to assess our models and to gain those new data sets. The other thing I'd like to highlight here is the importance of producers, right? So to keep that conversation going, we welcome the communication and the exchange of producers. Sometimes, many times we learn a lot. Sometimes the conversation is not easy, but that's fine. We have to have those conversations, right, to move forward. And this is our goal here is to establish those connections so far, we've had very good feedback and very good conversation, some some hard comments, but true comments that you have to address and incorporate. One thing I'd like to, to highlight is that the producers are a very big piece of what we do, and we define our priorities in our research direction based on what we hear that's going on on the ground. So this is very important for us.
0: And if there's producers that are listening today who want to give you feedback or who want to get in contact with you what is the best way for them to do so
1: i think email is probably you know the best way so if you go to the humanitoba webpage the university of manitoba if you search for my name marcos cordero i think the spelling is going to be on the podcast as well so you can just search for me there there you should find my email and phone number phone is sometimes hard because i many times i'm i'm in the lab i'm in the classroom, so I'm not always in the office, but email is the best way to keep track of the conversation. So it's my first marcos.cordeiro, my last name, at humantova.ca, but you can find my email at the university's website.
0: Perfect, and I will make sure that it's also in the show notes, so if there's Thanks. listeners who are looking for Thanks. it, they can go there.
1: Sure, Chantal, that would be great.
0: So thank you so much for taking your time today to meet with me and to be on the podcast, and I'm sure but these are conversations we're going to continue to have and I would welcome the opportunity to have a chance to talk to you again in the future, if that's possible.
1: Sure, Chantel. I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate the chat. I always you know, cherish those, those moments of talking about agriculture and thinking about it, right? Not only stating what the results are. I like those conversations because it's not a data dumping event. It's more like a two-way conversation that I learned from you and you can exchange some information this is really great so i appreciate the opportunity and i look forward to meeting you again in the future
0: wonderful thank you so much thank you for joining us for this episode of beef and forage roundup for more information on the research projects or upcoming extension events please visit us on facebook instagram and twitter at mb beef and forage for full project reports and more information about mbfi please visit our website mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project partner or contributor, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada.